welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11 this morning. Let's hear the Word of God together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's powerful word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is intended to pierce and discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. May it have its clear but merciful work on our lives as we hear it today. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I'm a reader of historical uh, biography, but also... uh, Historical fiction, books built around events and personalities of the past, and uh, one that I'm reading right now is about the life of a uh, Christian woman named Perpetua, who was one of the most influential martyrs in the early church. She died on March 7th, 203 AD, in the arena at Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia because of the testimony of her faith. Initially torn by a wild animal, but because she didn't die quickly enough, she accepted the sword across her throat. Uh, It's an interesting uh, life that I'm reading about her. Uh, She was a young mother at the time. She had come to faith, even though she was the daughter of a very prosperous and influential uh, Roman family. Her father was part of the of the the leadership of that city, a a noble Roman who never accepted her faith, tried to persuade her up till the very end through the jailhouse doors to get her to recant her faith. In that time, persecution had risen to its greatest height. It was uh, in the year 201 that the Roman emperor, Emperor Septimus Severus forbade conversion to Christianity. And in the year 203, the governor of Carthage, Hilarion, began to enforce this edict. Perpetua and four companions were arrested because in clear violation of the emperor's command, all of them were what were known as catechumens, people preparing for baptism. And uh, they accepted death in the arena because of their commitment to the faith. At that time... The the Christian church was different than it is in our time. I mentioned that they were catechumens. What, what, What was that? It was a person who had trusted Christ as Savior and who was undergoing instruction in order to be baptized. By that time, persecution had become so great in the Christian church and heresy was so widespread that, uh, when you came and professed faith in the church, it was a process of up to three years of time before you were baptized. You were taken through three years of instruction, three years of being observed in the fellowship, three years of training in doctrine so that your life could be observed so that they could detect that you were not 
a false believer, that you hadn't been infiltrated into the church to betray the church, but also so that they would know that you would not be deceived into heresy and bring heresy into the church. So you weren't baptized immediately in the church anymore by the year 200. It took three years of instruction. That meant that a large proportion of Christians in the church were what they called adherents. They were followers of Christ and they were part of the church and they attended the church gatherings, but only a certain portion, a lesser portion, were committed all the way to baptism. It's interesting. Perpetual was one of those. In the baptism experience, the, uh, the Christians gathered for a baptism at the end of your three-year portion when, the, when the, the leaders of the church had affirmed your readiness. And you came to the baptismal event with your old robe on over your garments. And when you stood at the edge of the baptistry, you cast off your old robe on the floor around you. You went down into the baptistry. You went under the water, signifying a death to an old life. And you came up out of the water, signifying commitment and to, to a new life. And then as they led you out of the baptistry and you came up to the steps to the other side, there was a believer waiting for you with a brand new sparkling white robe and they placed that around your shoulders, and you left the baptismal event dressed in that beautiful white robe. That might have been what Paul was referring to, even as a tradition of the earlier church in Paul's time, when he talked in verses 9 and 10 about putting off the old self. The Greek there was a word that was used to describe taking off a robe. Putting off the old self with its practices in verse 10 and, and, and putting on the new self which has been renewed and is being renewed and following Christ. That's what it was like to commit to Christ in the early days. Contrast that with today's American conversion stories that you see and hear in churches. What does it mean to become part of the church today? Well, it doesn't mean much more than saying you trusted in Christ or in some churches, just checking a box and turning a card in at what they call the decision table. Once you've said it or checked it, in our churches today, we accept it. We don't examine it. We don't try it or test it. Once you've said it, we accept it, and we often expect very little from it. We, we embrace you and, and affirm your faith is real. We... Uh, put you into a community, which we should, and then we allow you to take, take your choice of whatever ministry you think suits what you'd like to do, and, and no more questions are really asked. And so we've got a lot of people in our churches that are adhering, they're coming, they're, they're attending, they've made a profession, but not that many who are being refined and have shown true change of life. Adhering is fine in our culture. Changing, we don't want to press anybody about because we're, on, we're a culture of individualists and we don't want to press people out of their comfort zone. So today we have fewer changed lives in the visible church in America and a lesser changed world, I would suggest. And often when pressure comes upon the faith of people who have professed that they follow Jesus, we've got some very short-lived believers in terms of faith under pressure. The early Christians were not that way. They expected more. And in this passage today, you will see that God expects more. I'm not talking about adding works to your decision of saving faith. Oh, nothing can be added to that. But I am talking about the life of the disciple which is what Paul is talking about here. God expects people who claim the name of his son to begin to live lives that glorify his son. He expects, if you will, a supernatural life, a life that demonstrates that Christ dwells in you, that what matters to Christ matters to you, and that shaping your life after Christ is a passion for you. That's a supernatural life, and I want to speak about it from Paul's words today. Very pointed words pointed words of confrontation about dimensions of sin that all of us face as human, human, human beings, but that Paul wants us to be deeply serious about in our new disciples' walk. 
There are three dimensions in this passage that I want to bring out to you. And if you will, they're kind of three steps out of the baptistry and into a life that really is supernatural. So let's look at the passage together. There are three dimensions that I think this passage reminds the Christian about if you're going to live out your life in Christ. The first is, he challenges you from the very beginning to remember your new identity in life. I'm so glad our worship set was built around the message of last week, that new creation experience and our new identity, because it drives every action in our new life. And Paul has built this epistle around that understanding. You remember that uh, this epistle is built like a lot of his, uh, Romans and Ephesians in particular, where he gives a a solid basis of doctrine in the first parts of the, the epistle, and then he turns, and out of that understanding, he begins to teach you how to live and what you're supposed to do. So who you are comes before what you're supposed to be doing. And the whole book has now shifted in Colossians. The first two chapters were confronting heresy and exalting the greatness of Christ. So it was filled with learning. Now the whole book shifts at chapter 3, verse 1, from learning to living. And the last two chapters here, chapter 3 and 4, are about living out who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, in the language of chapter 3, verse 1, kind of changes his argument. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then he begins to give all of this uh, whole series of commands to his readers in chapter 3 about lots of dimensions of life. So the book has shifted. It's hinged there from learning to living. And living starts, Paul said, with remembering what I've taught you about who you are in Christ. You can't act as someone you really are not. Now this teaching, as I said, starts in chapter 3, verse 1, when he, ta- when he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Live a supernatural life. And it continues all the way through this passage, and it teaches you two things about your new identity. The first is this, you have died to sin. We touched on it last week. He amplifies it farther on in this passage. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it again. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There you see two dimensions of what happened when you trusted Jesus Christ. Invisibly, spiritually, supernaturally, and eternally, you died to an old way of life, and you died to sin, and a new life was born in you. You were born again, regenerated. The Spirit of God brought new spiritual life into the depths of who you are, and you now have a new dimension to who you are. You've died to sin, and you have been born into a new life. And you see both of those in that passage. In this next passage we're learning today, it's right in the middle of the next paragraph. Verse 9, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. He talks there about that life and death experience. Now he's saying, since you left an old life, start living a new life. Put off the habits of the past. Walk into the habits of the future. You put the robe aside at the edge of the baptistry when you trusted Christ. You were baptized into Christ and now walk in that new identity. You get the picture, I hope. So you've died to sin. The scripture is very clear on this. But the second dimension you've got to remember about your new identity in life is that you've been made alive to God. God did not simply execute the sin impulse in your life. He's given you a new power to live a supernatural life. That's also in verses 1 to 3. You died, verse 3, and you have a life that is now hidden with Christ in God. You, are, you have a, a life in you that, that, that comes alive, if you will, with the supernatural things, with a real deep relationship with Christ. Now, I took you back to another passage, and I'm going to walk back again. Last week, I was in Romans 6 with you for just a moment, and I want to go there again because it's the clearest description that illustrates what Paul is talking about in Colossians, a principle of teaching the Bible 
Bible and understanding it is comparing Scripture with Scripture, isn't it? It's the rule of interpretation and comparison. And so Romans 6 is a searchlight that helps you see the the truth of Colossians 3. In Romans 6, Paul says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He was, being, uh, he was answering a possible argument there that all of our redemption in Christ and our total acceptance by God eternally could lead to us doing whatever we want and just taking advantage of grace. Now, he, he anticipates that argument as he's, as he's taught about grace in Romans 5, and he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is very interesting. In Paul's mind, there was no such thing as a truly regenerated Christian who still wanted to live in sin. It's not saying there's no such thing as a truly regenerated Christian who still struggles with sin. Oh, but there's been a total change in the direction of your heart. You want to please God. If you don't, there's questions about whatever may have happened in your your heart. So Paul says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There you see the the same two images from Colossians 3. When you came to Christ, when you were born again in a spiritual way behind the scenes, God placed you into Christ And as whatever happened to Christ happened to you. When Christ died to sin on that cross in some mysterious way, you were there too, and that happened for you. You were chosen in Christ, weren't you, from the before the foundation of the world. When you were converted and born again, the Bible says the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ. So you're you're joined with him in a mysterious, supernatural way. It's a mystery. I can't explain it, but I sure accept it because God says it's true about me. If I'm in him, whatever happened to him happened to me. When he died to sin, I died to sin. When he rose in newness of life, when he rose in resurrection power, that same resurrection power has now come into me and and I can now live for the things of God. That's what Paul is saying here. We can now walk in newness of life. What a great phrase. What a great confidence that no matter what kind of life I'm coming out of, I can experience newness and beauty in life through Christ. That's a great encouragement. Some of us are coming from lives of darkness and brokenness and addiction and crime and whatever it might be. And we say, I know that most of the Christians around me have a life that I'll never deserve. Well, none of us deserve it. But you need not think that just because of the darkness of your past, you can't have the brightest of futures because it's not based on what you did. It's based on what he did. So you've died to sin, number one. And number two, you've been made alive to God. And so that should make its way out in your practice. And that's go down to verse 11 of Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that you know that that's true about the new you, you start living that out by faith. You have a different relationship to sin than you used to have. It used to dominate you. Now you have a choice. It used to be a a condemning prison for you. Now you've been set free from it and you can become more and more like Jesus Christ as you step out by faith and you live like who you now are. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members, your physical body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's the whole picture. This is is the, the critical juncture for understanding how to live a supernatural life. It's a mystery about how he did it, But we step out by faith, believing he did it, and we can live different lives. This is why Paul said in Galatians, and it was read in our hearing earlier this morning, 
that as I step out by faith, believing I can live in a different way because I'm now a different person in a mysterious way, the power of Christ rises up in me as I move out by faith. And I find out in the moment and in the hour, I have the power to say no to sin. And as I do that, his life is shown in me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? When he was crucified. So in a mysterious way, I was there in the same way. And when that happened, the power over sin was broken in my life. I no longer have to sin. I can obey Christ. Not perfectly, but progressively. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How do you defeat sin? He does it. Wait a minute. I thought you said I do it. Yes. What's your favorite color, Pastor? Plaid. How can they both be true? I told you earlier it's a mystery. You do it. But as you do it, he rises up in you with his own person and power, and you find the strength to do it, and you see God carrying you through. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Who's acting in that verse? You or Christ? Answer, yes. Look at that. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's doing it all in my life, through my life, in every moment. And the life, who now lives? I live in the flesh, in my human body, in my human experience. I live. How do I live it? By faith in the Son of God. When he calls me to obey him in a moment, I step into that obedience by faith. I step out, and as I've often told you, I trust him to step up in me with the power to, to do that, and I walk in obedience, and he carries me, but I do the walking. It's a mystery. But I can only do it if I've died to sin and I've been made alive to God. Now that should change how you view you in your battles with sin. Now this is interesting. So often today, because of the teaching of our culture and the teaching about who we are, there's a certain hopelessness that sets in about true change. And we rationalize our battles over our moral issues in our life and other things that Christ wants to change, habits, issues. And a lot of us give in to the idea that some things about us are just never going to change. We'll talk about a certain area of your life that, that it just seems to trip you up time after time. It's relational sin, or maybe it's a mental or moral sin, or emotional sinkhole that you slip into, whatever it is. I understand we have tendencies of weaknesses, but the fundamental idea that you can never change and never grow is not a biblical idea. And yet I, I know that we often say, you know, that part of my life, we, we tell us in the, in the secret of our own conversation after yet another failure, we just begin to tell ourselves after a few years, I guess I'm just never going to change. And I just better make peace with that. I can please God here and here and there and there, but this is just never going to change. I might as well accept it. Boy, with a show of hands, I bet you every one of us has been there with a certain part of our battle, right? Or you just, you just begin to accept the fact that it's just you. Or in a relationship where somebody else just continues to fall into a certain sin that damages your life, but you're committed to him, and you just say, well, it's just him. Or you may go back and believe that because of events that happened to you when you grew up or childhood or damaging things that might have happened to you, it forever shaped some limits or some broken things in your personality. I, that may be true about the soulish dimensions of your mind and your battle with emotions, but I'm telling you, in the deepest dimension of who you now are in Christ, something fundamentally has changed, and you are a new person. Some people just say, well, that's my temperament. I know that that's the way I'm built. Everybody, you know, and we, we quote all the tests that we took when we were, you know, working, and say, I'm a, I'm a high D, or I'm a whatever... Trapped in my Enneagram again, you know. I mean, it's just... 
Are these things valid? Well, they're insightful, but are they determinative? Not as determinative as what the hand of God has done in your life. You know, I'm not, you, you might believe in the Enneagram. I'll, tell, I'll ask you to believe in something and better. How about your Enneagram? Who he is, what he's done. You are not captive to the dimensions of your personality, the events of your past. Those may be always battles for you, but they're no longer your identity. Don't let that understanding determine you. Go back to parenting and say, well, it's my parents. So you know what? I actually have a new spiritual parent, the Lord God. I may trace my physical and mental and emotional ancestry back to my parents and where, where I grew up, but I am a new person in Christ, and I have another parent. I have another one who influences me. I'm a, I'm a preaching. Let me, let me just stop. And I think you get my point. I, one author has put it this way. The truest thing about you is that as a Christian, you are righteous. Sin is alien to you now. It's, it's an intrusion. It's an enemy. You've been transformed. You're not two people. A lot of Christians believe this. You're not an old man and a new man living side by side and fighting each other. The old two dog analogy, whichever dog you feed wins. And No, that's an error. You're not two natures fighting against each other. You're not both in Adam and in Christ. The Bible says you were in Adam, but you are now in Christ. That's part of what I'm talking about there, the descendancy of who you are. You were a slave to sin, Colossians says, but you're now a slave of righteousness. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. It's been crucified. It's dead. This is now your, your identity, and this is the premise of sanctification. You are a new person you are a new creature, you were born again, and you can begin to live out of that identity and can become increasingly yours, and you can become increasingly like Jesus Christ. Oh, how I, how I want to drill that into our hearts. This is why Paul says, as we go back to our passage, you've been raised with Christ, verse 1. You've died to sin, verse 3, and you have a new life that's hidden with Christ in God. Now look at our text, beginning at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Look at the word therefore. He's saying you can act for Christ because you're now changed by Christ. Now, with that basis, number one, about living a supernatural life. It starts by remembering your new identity in life. That's why Paul begins his whole argument by going back to that. Therefore, we get to the second. And this is where we get in the difficult conversation and confrontation of three dimensions of sinful life that all believers struggle with, pastors included. Paul says... When you understand your new identity, that's the first step in a supernatural life. The second step is challenging sin's power in your life. Challenging sin's power. Now, there are some of you listening to me right now who almost said inside, whoa, I can do that? <laughs> I can challenge sin's power in my life? For me, my Christian life is just being glad I'm forgiven, <laughs> And glad I, I'm around a different class of people and I'm, I, I, I now enjoy worship and I, I get encouraged when I read my Bible, but I can challenge certain deep habits in my life. Yeah, you can do that. That's the whole purpose here of what he's talking about. A part of that is because our Christian culture itself has stopped believing that Christians can challenge. Their, in fact, we, we've said that if you identify as a Christian, that's, that's enough. We're into identifying, but we're not so much into living, living it out. That's just our whole culture right now. You can identify in any way, and we have to accept your statement, regardless of whether that's reflected in your life or not. Look how we treat our current Christian celebrities. The biggest Christian celebrities right now, right now are athletes. And if your favorite athlete, if you find out your favorite athlete is also says at some point in some interview or when he went to some gathering that he's a Christian, you completely give him total personal and theological credibility. You're just so thrilled that your favorite team has actually been affirmed by Jesus. I mean, or your favorite athletic idol. And yet 
we never looked more deeply into their lives and realized that so many of them still haven't married their girlfriends. They're just biblical baby daddies. Seriously. We don't take, we don't let any of the thing in their lifestyle that completely contradicts that they, in one particular, particular interview said that, that Jesus is their savior. Identifying is all we require. Living, we don't press that on anybody. That's totally unbiblical. Whatever politician that we're following or whatever uh, social movement leader that we're so entranced with saying they're leading the way I want to lead and they've got the values that I wanted to have and they attach Jesus to that in a political speech or a conversation, we give them total credit. No, wait a minute, back up. See if they come out of the other side of the baptismal pool. You understand what I'm talking about. And it's deadly because if you are serious about living for Christ, some of the most discouraging people in your world are going to be other Christians. You have conversations with young single believers today who are trying to live a simple life of biblical purity. And you will find out that some of the most discouraging people around them are fellow people who identify with Jesus, but who have no connection with Jesus in their private sexual lives. They're sleeping around just like everybody else is. They're involved in all kinds of uh, porn issues and everything else, just like every other single. But yet they go to Bible studies and love Jesus, but they've kept that part of their life separate. Now, the Bible doesn't say identifying is all you need to do. No, if you're his, you must challenge sin's power in your life. It's what Christians do, he says. Therefore, since you've been raised, since you are Christ, you've got to start putting to death, verse 5, what's earthly in you. And from verse 5 all the way through verse 11, he hits three different areas of chronic sin that believers need to get serious about. By the way, if you wanted to know, this is going to be the pointy part of the preaching. For, uh, for you and me. The first, there's three dimensions. In verse 5 to 7, he talks about sensual sin. In verses 8 to 9, he talks about personal sin toward other people. And then finally, in verse 11, he talks about relational sin in the whole body. Let's take them one at a time. Sensual sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, you, make, you look at that, and you might think, well, that's a list of five or six totally different sins. And some of them are related, like I can, I can see sexual morality and impurity related, but covetousness, I don't see the connection there. Well, wait a minute, I'll show you a connection. Bible commentators over the generations, older commentators and modern ones, have seen this list... It it is a list of sins, but it's actually a description of a progression into one great sin. The great sin is sexual immorality that leads the description. And the other words that come after it are the, the, the rungs and the ladder you have to go down to get to acting out immorality. So it's, it is a list, but it's not really a list. It's a description of a progression of what happens in your mind and with your will for you to go from purity to outward immorality. So it really goes from the outward result. Sexual immorality is the outward activity. But it all goes back to the inner motive that started it all, and that, believe it or not, is idolatry. So let me kind of go through this. The best way for me to describe it to you is to go through the words and and hook them together. I will say that one of the best at doing this in uh, in my research is Dr. John MacArthur, and I'm borrowing from some of the observations. I want to give him credit. But like I said, these particular understandings have been seen by Bible commentators over many years of time. Look at the words. Sexual immorality, what's that? Well, it's the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. And it covered every dimension of of sex acts 
or sexual involvement. When you get to God's word, it's basically any unlawful sexual act. Unlawful to who? The United States government? No. Unlawful in the eyes of God. (laughs) He's got stricter standards, by the way. So immorality, porneia, meant anything involved that you were involved in sexually as an act that's outside of what God's design is. And, and, and what, what does God say is a lawful sexual act? Well, it's, it's sexual relations between a man and a woman in marriage. That's all. So anything outside that domain falls into the area of immorality, porneia. That's any sex act between any two people or the, the imagined involvement of yourself through the, the experience of pornography, I would say. I think that goes over a line, and as Jesus said, you imagine it in your heart, you've done it in your life. There's a, there's a point of commonality there. Of course, that, that's in total contrast to a world where today, any sexual expression that you want to identify with has to be accepted. There we go with identifying and completely disconnecting that from consequences or standards. We've got we've to affirm that. Well, the Bible says that anything outside of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman in the marriage covenant is not what God designed, and it doesn't please him. So that's the outward act. Now, how does that outward event happen, how does it come to be? Well, it comes to be when you go through the, the transition of all these other words. You'll see how they build on, on each other. I'll just keep going back through the list real quickly. The next word is impurity. What that meant was uncleanness in thought. Very important connection. You don't get to the act before you go through the gateway of thought. And you allow un, unclean thoughts to, to, to be at home in your mind and okay with your will. Jesus identified the connection between your thought life and your acting out life in Mark chapter 7 when he said that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, same word, fornications, murders, adulteries, etc. And so to spring into active deed, you've got to let this inward impurity be at home in your thought life and be accepted by your will. Let's go on. So you've got immoral actions that are there, they really only come about if you've allowed evil thoughts, impure thoughts into your life. How do they get birth? Well, then the next word is passion. That just sent, met, met a, a uh, kind of a heated desire that, that you allow to live in your thought life and in your emotional life. It's like a glowing ember that with the right encouragement can be blown into a live coal that's fueled into a fire. And that may be a connection in the physical body, but it's just a, a glowing ember that could glow into great fire if you let it and you let that stay in your life. And he goes next to evil desire. How's that different from impure thoughts? Evil desire is a, is a term that meant spending time thinking about it, contemplating the act and the satisfaction, and treasuring up that right to do so in your mind and heart. It goes a little deeper, doesn't it? Now we get to words that might seem to be a disconnect. We've got sexual immorality. I can see impure thoughts connected with that. I can see a glowing coal of passion that I let grow in my life and I give permission to in my thought life and in my emotional life too. It's where emotional affairs often suddenly get blown into reality because of a simple action. And I can understand evil desire, but now covetousness? That's always been associated with money to me. Well, no, really. The word simply in the Greek mind meant to desire something you couldn't have. Covetousness doesn't have to just do with dollars or a position or a job. No, it, 
It's basically you being focused on getting what you can't have. And what can't you have? In God's world of sexuality, you can't have sexual satisfaction outside of what he has said for you and what is good for you. And yet there's that desire, no, I want to want what I can't have. And you let that entitlement grow or you let that dominate your heart. So really, covetousness here is not related to money. You won't find money in the passage. You find immorality in the passage. And so commentators say that's where the link is. And then finally, he says covetousness, which is idolatry. And you think, well, that really doesn't make any connection at all. Isn't that a bunch of Greek guys bowing down to a little niche with some little statues? I saw that in Gladiator. Isn't that true? No. What's idolatry? Putting anything in the place of God in your life. And wanting to gain satisfaction from that. It's worshiping something other than God. So uh, if, if you want what you want, but God says, that's not what I want for you, what do you do? You do the only thing your flesh tells you to do, change God's. <laughs> so so it, it, when you understand this, outward immorality whether it's in an act or in an imagination through pornography, because I think pornea covers both, comes from a whole process of inward decisions is what that text is teaching. And it's all driven by this drive at the very beginning that what God wants for me is not what I want, and it's not sufficient. I have a driving desire in me so many of us, when we talk about sexual involvement and you counsel in, in the area of sexual sin and what people today call sex addiction, I don't think that's a proper term, but, and they talk about going past limits and nothing seems to satisfy anymore and it just, they have to see more or do more to get that same sense of whatever it does for them, that golden experience of relief and of it, it, it's, it's connected to an inner drive. I think it's based on the fact, and I've counseled many people in this way, and I understand it in my own life this way. We live in a fallen world. You and I were not created for this world. <laughs> we were created to live in a world that God designed. But we are now in a fallen world, and when Adam and Eve fell, and sin entered into the planet, and when we came into our being, and we battle with sin internally from our old sin nature, two things are true about life in a fallen world. One is, there's no security. Adam and Eve had a perfect, secure relationship with God where he met their every emotional need. They knew that he was theirs and they were totally secure. That left that morning in the garden when sin arrived. And ever since then, there is no true security in who you are. And also, God said, the moment you do this, death is coming. And what comes with death? Pain. Everything about living in this world now has pain with it. And we were not created for that, and we don't want to live and tolerate that. And so every day of your life and my life, we live in a broken world where there is no security and lots of pain. Pain from situations, pain from people, pain from whatever it is. We lost our security, and, we're, and we're, we're, we're in this world that's filled with the pain of sin and the pain of darkness and lostness. And we don't want to live with all of that. And so we find solutions to try and give us false security in an immoral relationship or a fantasy life and give us momentary relief from whatever pain is occurring. Whether it's a financial aggravation or a relational disappointment, whatever it is. And so we face a choice. Will I trust God to be enough for me in a world where there's no security? Will I find my security in him moment by moment? And in a world that's filled with pain, will I know that I can take the pain because he will be my sufficiency in it and I have to live with it until one day when there will be no pain? God said, that's how we do that. I can do that or 
I can find somebody else but God, and I can find other pathways that will momentarily give me a sense of security and dull my pain. In my counseling experience and in my personal battles as a man, I can tell you I think those are the two drivers behind the addictive nature of sexual sin. I think they're drivers behind all sin. You can see it here. The idolatry. Read the verse backwards. I'm tempted into an idolatrous decision that trusting God through the insecurity and the pain of my life is not enough. I can't live by faith. I won't live by faith. I will find another idol. I will find something else that promises me something easier, and that idol is sexual gratification. Then I let the covetousness that is part of my sin nature justify that saying i know that god doesn't want it but i think i need it and therefore i'm going to start thinking about getting it and the thought progression goes further an evil desire comes when i basically let that desire gain a place and justify it in my thinking and i begin to contemplate it more and more and as i contemplate it my body kicks in my emotions begin to dominate me and i begin to experience a core of passion that now drives not just my thoughts but the emotional and physical part of me and that passion is there and it's a throbbing coal in the inner recesses of my life and then I begin to start to think about what it would be like to act on that and that's what the impure thoughts are it's acting it out in the arena of my mind and thinking about the satisfaction of it and finally when that has gotten to a certain point boom I move into the action of it and that's sexual immorality And that great battle is all of our battle. And the great solution is to understand that he is enough. And that by faith I must stand in who he is and who he has made me. And I must find enough in my life that's hidden with Christ in God to give me the ability to live in a world where there's no security and a lot of pain until he comes for me. And somehow, as I live every moment of that battle by faith, and I step towards him instead of toward my, my immoral directions, he will meet me, and he will be sufficient for me. And that's how we live day to day, night to night, hour to hour. And the good news is that he is sufficient for us. But it's a deep battle because you see it affects the core of who we are. That's why sexuality is so profoundly difficult an issue. But that's it. Believing he's enough and being aware of who he is. That's interesting. In this list, he follows it. In verse 6, he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Just a little reminder that God hasn't changed his mind about immorality. Lots of Christian teachers today are trying to teach you that he's changed his mind. He's heard the culture. God's gotten therapy. He realizes after all these years how darkly abusive, darkly abusive he has been to set limits and to say that it's not your choice. No, no. The wrath of God is coming. That Bible teaches he's already decided he will judge immorality, and it's coming. It's set for the end of time. He's not changing his mind. Remember that. In these you also once walked when you were living in them. His logic here is you don't have to live under the same sexual drives that you did in your new life. Stop doing that. That's a revelation to so many of us today. All right. Let's get to another one. You say, wow, I hope this one's a little less intense. <laughs> no, actually, this is just as bad. This is how we sin against each other through the outward acts of wrath and slander and hate. Personal sin. These were all happening in the life of the church at Colossae, by the way. He had, the Greek, basically, he's saying here, he's saying, stop doing this stuff. <laughs> so their church was battling just like the church today does. Here's the second dimension. We're going to have to go hurry now. Personal sin, verses 8 and 9. Now he shifts, 
He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So there's another list, you say. Well, actually, Bible commentators say this is a list. Yes, it's true. But this is another description by Paul of, of the progression of a particular sin. But this one's backwards. The first list in verse 5 started with the outward acts and morality, and it goes back through the thought life about how you got there. This one starts with the beginning of, of the thought life, anger, and what it ends up being. Anger goes and progresses from anger inside to wrath, to malice, to slander, to obscene talk about another person, and then lying about that other person. Those are the outward acts, so it starts with the inward motive. This list is kind of flipped. But it's just as difficult to teach. So this is a progression from the inward motive to the outward act. And again, I'll just go through the words. It starts with anger. And he ends with lying about somebody. So this is a progression of inward attitudes that then lead to outward verbal acts about people. And this is as destructive in the church as rampant immorality would be. James in James 3 said... It's, it's among the worst of sins because of how destructive it's like a fire. It'll burn a person down and cut a swath through a, through a fellowship. So let's go through it. There's an inner attitude that starts it all, and that's anger, the word anger. There is orge, and it meant a deep down kind of smoldering hostility and offense taken, imagined or real. And you let some deep down anger begin to smolder. Soon, and I, the language just here is so picturesque, anger is like a, a little ember that's smoldering. Wrath is the word, the Greek word thumos. And that's a fire that suddenly breaks out from an ember. The Greeks used to, to describe a, a sudden grass fire that, that just flames out because of a small little spark that lands on the dry grass. So you've got a, a smoldering issue of offense in your life or an opinion about someone or something and you allow some other dimension to, to fan that into a blaze of sudden fury that doesn't die down. It's interesting, these don't die down, they just kind of feed themselves. Those are all inward attitudes. So you start with anger, something happens or you allow it to just be dwelt upon so that it flames up into an attitude, a frozen attitude of wrath against that person. And that attitude grows into what the Bible calls malice. And that's an interesting word that was thinking with a desire to harm. Now you've gone from offense to intent. This is all inward still. And finally, that begins to move into the outward. So a deep down offensive anger flames into a flaming attitude of bitterness. And then that leads into thoughts of malice, of desiring to harm the person or the people that have done what has offended you. Now you get to the outward. Now it breaks through into your outer behavior with slander. What's slander? I think we're all familiar with it. It's spreading falsehoods about a person or people. It's creating impressions that are not true to damage somebody else. You don't slander because it's a slip of your tongue. You slander because you want to damage that person. That's why there are laws against it. So now it's, it's boomed out into the outward world. And it goes further. And obscene talk, that's a weird translation. It's a hard Greek word to translate, but it meant... It could be translated blasphemy or abusive speech. I think abusive speech is the better translation here. It meant to talk to someone in insulting words. It meant to get into their face and insult them and to verbally abuse them. So now you go from inward anger that bursts forth into a sense of malice and wrath that wants to hurt them. Then you go to slander where you spread abusive or untrue things about them to other people. And then finally, when you see them in a relationship, you start delivering it directly to them. You attack them verbally. That's outward. And then out of that, don't miss the connection. Do not lie to one another. The Greek says literally stop lying to one another. So I think that's a connection between the two. And he's saying ultimately, not only will your anger get you to the point where you're assaulting that person and 
hurting them verbally face to face, wherever you go, you're also tearing them down with outright lies to others. Things you now know are not true, but because you're so angry, it doesn't matter to you anymore. And you begin to lie to them and you lie about them. And the circle of destruction is complete. Your integrity is gone. And unfortunately, their integrity may be deeply destroyed and damaged by what you do. This is why James 3 says the tongue is a consuming fire. This is another dimension of sinful temptation that the world exalts in. Take a look at the world right now. You go to any environment where people are talking about things that they're passionate about, and you will see this whole verse going on. National media, talking heads, expert against expert, proponent against opponent, social media, all of that can be lit up. It's a forest of this so often because people believe their passion is supreme. So all of this, he says, oh, you need to take a stand against that. By the way, the same drivers for the immorality are the drivers here. People get angry. Why? Because their security has been threatened. Somehow their sense of their safety or their importance or their significance has been offended by something they think happened or somebody actually did. And that lights a sense of anger in them. Their security has been challenged or their significance or they've been caused pain by certain, a certain situation, and they begin to deal with it outside of the way that God says to deal with it. And the solution is the same. Listen, maybe you have been offended. You take your offense to the Lord and know that he is sufficient for you. You don't have to destroy someone just because they may have hurt you. Take it to the Lord and know that he is sufficient for you, and then seek biblical ways to interact with that person this is an amazing thing. That fire can be lit in a matter of moments, and some of us, it, it can consume us. There's a third one, and that's relational sin. So you've got sensual sin, verses 5 to 7, personal sin, verses 8 and 9, and relational sin, verse 11. Interesting here. He says, here in the body of Christ, in the new life body, where people are all new in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. What is he talking about there? If, if we are divided person to person, like verses 8 and 9 say, we're, we're, we're individual enemies of one another. That can translate out into a whole society. And we do see that today. Now, there are five, uh, four or five different dimensions here. The, the uh, Greek and Jew, that's talking about racial division. The circumcised, uncircumcised, obviously, that's talking about religious differences and division. And then the barbarian Scythian, that's talking about cultural division between educated and less educated and cultures and the superiority battle that goes on. And then finally, uh, slave and free, obviously that's economic. So there are divisions in every society. Our, our world says those divisions anger me and I want them solved. And I want my sense of injustice or mistreatment or lack of equality to be the issue. And I will battle you and I will do everything I can until these divisions are solved. Well, Paul says, those may be pulsing in society, but they're somewhat pointless in the church because like I said before, we're not all who we were. We're all who we now are. Who are we? People in whom Christ is all and we're all in him. And so these dimensions may be real, but they are superseded by something greater that we're, and that is our unity in Jesus Christ. It all goes back to, put, back to putting our demands on the altar and saying, Lord Jesus, you're enough. And I want to learn to trust in you. We're going to finish it up here. Here's the third, and I close. So you've got to remember your new identity in life. Secondly, you've got to challenge serious sins in your life. And thirdly and lastly, he says, you, how do you put all this together? Well, you need to develop a thirst to know the God of your life. Right in the middle of all of this instruction about confronting sin. 
He says, seeing, verse 9, that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, there is a positive way to move all this negative stuff into submission. You say, I'm glad because, Pastor, you don't know my hourly battle with lust right now. You don't know how many times I'm tempted during my workday to go out to the parking lot with my smartphone. You don't understand the battle over resisting an emotional affair with a coworker right now because things are just so difficult and dark in my marriage. You don't get the fact that I've got a trip hammer temper and I have been offended and I can hardly keep my words in. It seems humanly impossible for me. I know and God knows and that's why it's supernaturally dealt with. He gives you a moment by moment answer. Three things as I close. He says, listen, you can stand against these spiritually. By the way, victory over any of these areas of your life that I just described, the big three, they're not emotional. You do not conquer sensual sin emotionally. You do not conquer trip hammer anger and a a tendency to put little falsehoods out about people emotionally. You don't feel your way out of these. You decide your way out of them spiritually by faith. How do you do that? By growing in the knowledge of God's sufficiently, God's sufficiency. And that's what he says in verse 10. You got to do it by being renewed in the knowledge of God. Three things. It's a constant process. Greek here says you got to constantly be renewing your mind and learning more about God. It's just a discipline that we do to deal with sin. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul says, listen, once you've given your bodies to God, since he's bought you and made you a new person, verse 1, be transformed, same word there, by the renewal of your mind, same word as in Colossians. The Greek text there is be continuously, daily, momentarily transformed by renewing your mind in the word of God. A good friend of mine is a Bible teacher often said that the, hard, the hardest part about the Christian life is that it's so daily. He's got it wrong. The hardest part about the Christian life for me with my temptations is that it's so moment to my moment. It's a battle. But I can know him. It's a constant process. Secondly, it's a constant process of deepening knowledge. You go back to our passage in Colossians, and he says, be renewed in knowledge. Epigonosco, it's a strong word. Scrivener in his analysis of the Greek text says this. It means to become fully acquainted, to know God well. And if you know God well, you're going to know him well enough to handle whatever comes into your life that you're tempted to just sin away. You got to know him well. Remember, this is a world of no security and lots of pain. And you will not believe he's enough until you know he's enough. And you learn it through the the understanding of the word of God and then putting it to the test through trial. I'm telling you, learning and leaning on God through battle create knowledge of God. This is why Job, in in the book of Job, in an amazing way, after, I mean, Job was the godliest man on the planet at the time. Think about that as a resume piece. But he still, under all of his trials, saw at the end of it that he didn't know God as much as he needed to. And he wasn't trusting God as much. And therefore, he said at the end of it all, I have heard of you. This is Job 41 or 42, 5. I had heard of you, had heard of you by the hearing of the year. What why I was instructed, but now my eye sees you. I've seen more of you and how I need to trust you through my trials. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I thought I was a godly man. I thought I knew everything about you, but through these very trials, you've shown me more. Thank you, O God. So it's deepening knowledge that often only comes through battle. And it finally results in growing character. Paul says, as you're being renewed in knowledge, you're going to reflect the image of your creator, verse 10. You're going to become like Jesus. Isn't that what you want? I'll tell you what, it's what your new man wants. That's the upside of sin struggle. All that ugly real estate I just took us through. The upside of battling all those things is Christ-likeness. 
When you finally get serious about those things in your life, you're going to start pursuing God and obeying Him in deeper ways, and that's precisely what the Holy Spirit wants. And by the way, He will keep pressing on your inner life as a Christian until you're dead to get you out of these sins and into trusting Him. Because He wants you to find depth in Jesus and peace in Jesus, and He wants you to reflect the Son. Well, a lot's been said. I guess one of the biggest lessons of this passage is there should be no such thing as a Christian who's not serious about battling sin. You want one of the big takeaways? There it is. There should be no such thing as a Christian who's not serious about battling sin. Are you Am I? Or have we let the non-existent expectations of the modern church dull us and lull us into believing that identifying's fine, obeying, not so much? Well, the early church wasn't that way. They believed when they came up out of those baptism waters that they were going to be a Christian who was serious about battling sin. And they came out of that baptism water, committed into it, and committed into a world that would attack it. Now, you don't have to be rebaptized, but maybe you should revisit yours. Maybe you should go back in your mind and leave some old clothes behind. It'll do you good.